Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10x points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Chariots of Fire. So where does the power come from to see the race to its end? From within. If you're into watching white guys run, the movie never gets old. Even if you're not into that, it has one of the best coaching scenes ever filmed. Harold Abrahams, a British sprinter, is about to run the 100-meter final in the 1924 Olympics. His coach gazes out of his hotel room window at the stadium next door. The pistol sounds. The coach watches the sky over the stadium. Then he spies the British flag rising. That's how the coach learns that his runner has won the gold. There's a reason the coach isn't inside the stadium watching the race. He's been banned. Because he's a coach. In 1924, professional coaches are taboo. They're considered a form of cheating. The steroids of the age. It's all to do with this idea of this emerging gentleman amateur. So you were considered a gentleman if you were like upper class, uh, born into money. Tegan Carpenter George is the co-author of a book on the history of coaching. It's one of those subjects you don't really imagine there being a history of. What would have been the sports being played in the early 19th century? So, I mean, the upper classes would have been, you know, the typical cricket, um, fencing, rowing was quite a good one. Uh, Tennis, probably not tennis as we recognize it now. Um, So there's a sport called pedestrianism, which emerged sort of the early 1800s, basically walking races. Um, They were very lower class sports because there was lots of wagering and lots of gambling going on in there. And the upper classes weren't interested in that. Let me can let me stop you for a sec. Yeah. So you're saying the lower class sport was pedestrianism? Yes. So and actually, if you go back to the 1800s, they had stables of pedestrians, which was 
basically a group of men um, that would travel around the pubs of Britain and they would race against each other. Um, now, some of the things were ridiculous. So it would be like five day races. It would be who can walk a thousand miles in the fastest time. And they would get people to wager and bet on this. Um, There's something really funny about the idea of a walking race being pub based. Oh, yeah. So, so do they have to walk in a straight line? <laughs> Oh, no, no, they had like, I mean, there was arenas made for this, you know, this was big money. She doesn't even notice my attempt at a joke. To an historian of coaching, pedestrians are no laughing matter because they were the first athletes to employ coaches. So they had specific diets, they had specific routines, they were experimenting, they were getting their athletes to take... God knows what, because they thought that these concoctions would make them faster. And, and it would be people would come to a stadium to watch people walk around the track? Yeah, I mean, there was all different stuff. So when I say there was walking races, but there was, there was ridiculous things like backwards races, like jumping races. So coaching begins as an effort to get working class people to backpedal faster. But in the middle and upper classes, coaching just wasn't done. There was a belief kind of in the early 1900s that the middle and upper class body was superior to the lower class body. Therefore, if it was superior, it didn't require any sort of coaching or training because it was superior. So they could achieve what they wanted to achieve, but without this sort of um, interference, I think it was seen as interference from coaching because that was what the lower classes did. By the time the British elite finally started to embrace coaching, it was less a change of sentiment than an act of desperation. We did all right at the 1908 Olympics because we created the program. Um, so when you've got things like tug of war and model boat racing, you know, we, we did all right because we created that program. But once we started to compete against other nations, so particularly sort of 1952 after Helsinki, 1948, the other London Olympics, there's a real call for... Something needs to change. The British were basically losing at everything by the 1950s. They hired coaches to fix the problem. One coach was appointed to improve the training of athletes in the entire country. Part of his contract was that for £10 a week, so probably about $7 a week, he could be rented out to Cambridge University. However, if he was rented out to Cambridge University, he was told that he had to use the service entrance to enter the university because he was not considered a member of staff and that he could only speak to the athletes if they spoke to him first. This was the British idea about coaches, that they were a form of cheating or a sign of natural inferiority. The notion was so highly transmissible that it infected Harold Abrahams himself the same runner who, in Chariots of Fire, had hired a coach to help him win the gold medal. After Abraham's running career ended, he was put in charge of all of British amateur sports. So he was happy to employ a coach and use a coach all the time it got him further in sport. But when he was on the other side of it, he then kind of reverted to his amateur principles in the sense of, we don't, we don't like coaches. We control coaches. They know their place. The administrators are in charge. The coaches are their servants. That's what they used to refer to them as. Now, I can see why some aristocrat might find coaching distasteful. People born on top always want for everyone else to just stay in their places. 
One way to do it is to make fun of people who try too hard and ban any edge that might help them to compete. But the old aristocracy is dead. Now everybody thinks it's good to try. Everybody competes. And the people who take their coaching most seriously? The aristocrats. I'm Michael Lewis, and this is Against the Rules, a show about various authority figures in American life. This season's about the rise of coaches. This episode is about what happens when the edge that coaching gives you starts to feel a bit more like cheating. Earlier this season, we heard about the way science had transformed the coaching of pro baseball players. And not just them, but athletes of all kinds. Baseball was just the cleanest case study of how good players could be transformed into great ones. It's all described in a book called The MVP Machine, which talks about the teams that led the way. The Astros were really the first team that fully embraced it, that invested more heavily in the technology and were really pretty ruthless when it came to cleaning house and saying we're going to bring in people who are receptive to these new ideas and we're not going to give undue deference to tradition and experience. This is Ben Lindbergh. He's the co-author of The MVP Machine, at the center of which sits the Houston Astros. The Astros have been really cutthroat in all kinds of ways. They've looked for advantages that other teams were wary of. Back in 2012, the Astros hired a new general manager named Jeff Lunau. He was one of the new wave of Moneyball guys changing baseball, and maybe even more fanatical about data than the original Moneyball guys. He'd been a data geek and consultant at McKinsey, but went on to help run the St. Louis Cardinals. And when Lunau came to the Astros, he brought science and technology with him. The Astros' new coaches could do things like turn a tiny, light-hitting second baseman named Jose Altuve into a home-run-hitting league MVP. They turned several average pitchers into stars. In May 2017, the Astros' bench coach, Alex Cora, was working with the Astros' most famous player, Carlos Beltran. Beltran was in decline, he was 40 years old and had been in the big leagues for 20 years. Now he was struggling to hit, desperate for help, any kind of edge. The Astros coach suggests, how about we use this technology we already have, but to steal the opposing catcher's signs? So you know what's coming, fastball, curveball, slider. One thing leads to another, and soon the Astros' coaching staff has installed a TV monitor beside the dugout. It displays nothing but the feed from the center field camera. The Astros' management has written a software program to decode the opposing catcher's signs, which they give to the coach. The coach helps the players set up a signaling program. That's an old technology. The Astros in the dugout bang on a trash can. No bangs means fastball. One bang means curveball. Two bangs mean slider. 
and so on. Unlike the other hitters in professional baseball, the Astros hitters now know what's coming. That year they won the World Series. People were calling them one of the greatest teams in history. And it's a difficult thing to separate because the Astros are a very talented team who succeeded in legitimate ways, but were also cheating. It's funny because if you have an organization that is succeeding because of its informational advantages, because of it, it's, it's always looking for the informational edge, right. it is just a, a, you know, a hop, skip, and a jump to let's get their signs. Yes. <laughs> you know, <it's, laughs> let's use technology to actually infiltrate the other organization. Yes. And the camera that they were using to relay the signs in real time, a camera that was placed in the outfield, was actually a camera that was installed legally for player development purposes. We might never have known how the Astros were using their center field camera. But in the fall of 2019, a former Astros pitcher told a reporter what had been going on. The commissioner of Major League Baseball opened an investigation and published its findings. Then, all hell broke loose. In the words of Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred, the Houston Astros are currently undergoing a, quote, really, really thorough investigation into the reports that the team used cameras and other technology to steal pitching signs from the opposing teams. Now, the story ESPN was on it. Sports Illustrated was on it. The world was on it. The Houston Astros went from being the most envied team in baseball to social pariahs booed wherever they went. But this was about much more than a team's reputation. Could you just describe what happened on August the 4th, 2017? Yeah, on August 4th, 2017, Mike was brought in in the fourth inning. Um, the first pitcher had struggled. This is a guy named Ben Micellis. He's the lawyer for former Major League pitcher Mike Bolsinger, who's suing the Houston Astros. Uh, so Mike at that point was a middle reliever. He threw 29 pitches. Uh, of the 29 pitches, there were bangs, which indicated that it was going to be a breaking ball. The bang was sent from the dugout of the Astros by banging on a trash can um, to the batter to signify what pitch was going to be thrown. And so there were 40% of his pitches, there were bangs on. If you're wondering whether a big league pitcher has ever before hired a lawyer to sue an opposing team for the behavior of their coaches, well, no, this is a first. But then the coaches have never been able to generate this kind of edge. It was a disastrous outing. Um, and after a performance that was so embarrassing like that, the team lost confidence in him. Frankly, all scouts in the majors lost confidence in him. He was demoted to the minor leagues, played well right after that in the minors. Um, but then couldn't find work in the majors because he was viewed as having lost his last shot that game. And for all Mike knew until recently, he just thought he couldn't perform that day. So, so he did, in the moment, did he have any sense that anything peculiar was going on? He believed that they were the greatest team he's ever played against. Um, he was just, you know, shocked that they... He would say that it seemed that they knew the pitches that he was throwing, but he attributed it to their great skill and their great determination and being a great team, and that he just didn't have what it takes anymore. Mike Bolsinger was, in baseball terms, a nobody. The Astros were the elites. When you're a nobody and you go up against a member of the elite and you lose, well, it just confirms you're not good enough. You assume you can't compete. 
You never even know that the coach basically rigged the game with some software, a camera, and a trash can lid. The question then is, just how many games in life can be rigged? As listeners of this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert teams of nerds have the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first-place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. So the, the study of how people talk is, of course, you know, it's as old as people, basically. Mike Norton, psychologist, professor at the Harvard Business School. He's been studying the way people talk and thinking about how they might do it better. A lot of the research on conversation is kind of about, like, underlying grammar 
you know, so it's sort of what are the rules of language on how it works and which words come where and why in German are they over here, yeah. which is totally fascinating. But you could read all of that and still have absolutely no idea what you're supposed to say to someone when you're meeting them for the first time. Like there's no guidance, there's no help for us in any of the things that we're trying to get done, which is crazy because we talk all day, every day. It's the number one thing that we do. We talk, but we don't know how to do it effectively. But now there are new piles of data, truly massive numbers of sales calls, speed dates, Twitter fights, and so on, all recorded. I talked about this a little in the last episode, about social scientists who have new computing tools that make it easy for them to see patterns and analyze them. When you study people's conversation, you discover a funny thing. People who are just trying to be liked and respected have no clue how to do it. They make all kinds of mistakes. Humble bragging, for instance. There's two kinds, actually. There's complaint brags and humble brags. Complaint brags are this, whenever a celebrity on Twitter or Instagram writes, ug, dot, 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 whatever comes after that is a humble brag. You can just search for it. So they wrote, they wrote something like, ug, dot, 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 my hand is so sore from signing so many autographs. <laughs> it was just the best, the best. So that's a complaint brag, right? right, right. I'm, I'm, oh, I, all I want to do is tell you my hand hurts. And then the other thing. And the humble brag is the one which is almost more common with celebrities, which is the um, so honored to be on stage with Bono to receive this award. So that's a humble brag. Mike Norton set out two years ago to study it scientifically. He worked with two other psychologists, Oval Cesar and Francesca Gino. They conducted weird experiments, like having a person in a coffee shop try to get other people to sign a petition, but in some cases sprinkling into her chit-chat a humble brag. Other times, she just bragged. It turned out people were more likely to sign the petition if she just bragged. Mike and his colleagues call their paper humble bragging, a distinct and ineffective self-presentation strategy. Their case was airtight. If you want people to like or respect you, don't humble brag. We don't love people who brag, but we like them more because at least they're being honest, right? At least they're just saying, I'm awesome. It's these humble braggers that are these kind of phony and sincere people that really bother us. It's, it's odd given how much conversation happens that people are pursuing this wildly inefficient strategy. It's extraordinary how common bad strategies are. It really is because you'd think if we practice this from the time we're two, you know, all day, every day, we would have figured out what works and what doesn't. But part of the reason we don't is because people tend to be pretty polite. So if you humble brag, I'm very unlikely to call you out on it. Mm -hmm. So you think it worked. Now, later on, I'm going to go make fun of you to other people, but you're not going to know that I did that. And that's why we're bad at talking, in spite of how important it is and how much we do it. We don't get enough direct feedback. A handful of researchers now study how people talk and the strategies they use to be liked and respected. They've uncovered good strategies and some bad ones. And it was probably only a matter of time before somebody realized all this insight could be used to coach people how to talk. 
most of social life, we're better at perceiving strengths and weaknesses in others than executing those same things ourselves. We give different advice to other people than we would enact ourselves in that same situation. That's why coaches and third-party observers are so helpful. This is Allison Brooks, another psychologist at the Harvard Business School. You heard her at the end of the last episode. She just created a new class to coach her students. It's called How to Talk Gooder. We're not good at taking our own observations and applying them to ourselves. Observations and judgments. Allison knew how she wanted to open her class with one powerful tool she could hand students to improve their conversational ability. Topic selection. So we have this paper about that's the framework of how people choose topics. And the main empirical finding in that paper is that we have no idea what other people want to be talking about. We're really bad at reading them and what they're saying. And machines are better at it. And we probably think it's basically unknowable. That's right. I don't know what's inside that. I don't care to know. I don't, even if I tried, I probably wouldn't know. So might as well default to what I want to talk about. But if you use people's words and feed it to a machine, the machine knows way better. So it is knowable. It's funny when you watch dinner party conversation. Yeah. Average dinner party conversation. The way it ends up defaulting to less than optimal topics. Yes. If you empower people to switch topics more frequently, the conversation's much more interesting. Right. It's just you need to feel empowered, like it's okay to switch. And right. we're all on the same page about that. Right. Um, because there are very obvious cues when a topic stagnates. There's much more mutual silence. There's uncomfortable laughter. As we capture this in the data. That bad dinner party moment has become a subject of scientific inquiry, just like humble bragging. What we have found in our data is that people who are more aware of what the topic is at any given moment, and some people come into every conversation sort of with ideas already about what they might talk about with with any given person, uh, and those people tend to be more interesting and engaging conversationalists. So topic selection is is your first subject. That's right. Uh, It's the T of talk, T-A-L-K. As Allison was explaining to me what she had planned, I found myself thinking like some old British aristocrat. You mean to tell me that we're now not only going to coach people, but coach them how to talk? So I initially signed up for the class because at times I can be a very anxious conversationalist. Um, I am great with my friends, but I get really nervous about meeting new people. And that kind of leads to a lot of nervous tics when I talk to new folks. Meet Bridget Taylor, a student at the Harvard Business School, enrolled in the class, How to Talk Gooder. Like, I tend to talk way too much. I don't ask enough questions. Um, and that just, and also knowing that about myself makes me even more anxious when I enter new conversations. Let me, let me stop you. You don't sound like an anxious conversationalist. Yeah, sometimes I think maybe it's in my head a little bit, but I mean, I've definitely gotten a lot better at HBS just by brute force. It's such a social school and you have to meet new people all the time and you're here to get a job. So you have to network all the time. But it was a really big issue for me before school. Um, And I used to have to take beta blockers sometimes before big meetings or even just a meeting with my boss because I would get so nervous. Um, but here just, you know, if I, I would be popping like 10 beta blockers a day if I, (laughs) (laughs) you know, needed, needed that outlet. So I've just become, I've just become more accustomed, accustomed to it, but it's still in my head that, that I'm nervous. Do you think if I came in and I sort of objectively evaluated 
your conversational abilities and compare them to other people around you that I would notice you were deficient? Probably not. Um, Your conversational abilities might be something you can improve upon. I'd be, I'm highly dubious of the idea that Harvard Business School students aren't already at like the top 5% of social skills and conversational skills. They wouldn't be at the Harvard Business School if they, if they weren't. <laughs> yeah. I talked to a bunch of students, and they all said they were taking the course because they felt in some way inadequate when it came to conversation. I mean, one student in the class is a native Chinese speaker who was troubled that she was funnier in Chinese than she was in English. She was striving to become funnier in a second language. And if that didn't work out, there were other tricks on offer. In the class, we're learning about be interested rather than interesting. You can be a good listener and, you know, ask questions and have a genuine curiosity about who you're talking to. And that still makes you a really excellent conversationalist. You don't have to have the spotlight and be the most interesting person in the room, which has kind of been mind-blowing for me personally. (laughs) Now, is this a scandal that students at the Harvard Business School are the first to learn these new data-driven tricks of conversation? Of course not. That's what Harvard Business School does. Amplify the advantages of people who are already winning. I asked Allison Brooks if the course could eventually do more than that. If the market didn't matter at all, mm. what would be the fantasy about where, where you would take it? Oh, so many directions. I think a few answers. One, younger. So to kids in development, right? Younger children, particularly underserved populations, racially diverse, socioeconomic, gender diverse. These are the skills that could potentially propel people to success in their lives, really. Right, because the Harvard Business School student does not need to figure out how to make his status greater. Exactly (laughs) right. right. They They want to, but they they don't need to. They don't need to. That's right. As listeners of this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert teams of nerds have the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. 
the hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Just now we're living in a moment that highlights the power of advantages. If you're young and strong, you're more likely to live than if you're old and weak. If your company's big and rich, it's more likely to survive than if it's lean and small. If you have a great big home with lots of places to work and play, you're less likely to go insane than if you're jammed into some tiny apartment. Whatever advantages you had before the pandemic, well, those advantages are now amplified. People who get a BA, um, on average, make more money, have uh, more stable lives. Paul Tuff is the author of a book called The Years That Matter Most. It's about college and class mobility in America. But there's also increasing evidence that where you go to school matters too. And it matters especially for low-income students, first-generation students. If you're the first in your family to go to college, uh, where you go actually has a really huge effect on your, on your future earnings. But it also gives them often their first entree into, you know, rich American life, into sort of the, the culture of, of upper middle class and affluent uh, American society. Gives them connections, gives them sort of the social capital to understand how the world works. Elite colleges, of course, know this. They say they want more low-income students. But Paul found that the most selective colleges had more students from the richest 1% of Americans than from the entire bottom 60%. So he went looking for an explanation and found it from an SAT coach. This man named Ned Johnson, who runs his own company, a very successful company in the Washington, D.C. area called Prep Matters. And what Ned says, and I think what a lot of them say, is that the, the test measures your ability to take the test. They no longer believe, if they ever did, that the SAT really measures uh, your academic ability or anything deep about you. It measures how well you've been trained to take that test. And how much does it cost to get that training? Well, it depends. There's a, there's a wide variation. Ned is uh, pretty close to the top of the financial scale. I think he charges $400 an hour for his uh, students. So it's like hiring a lawyer. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge. The SAT and ACT are the biggest obstacles that poor kids have to overcome to get into the elite schools. 
Their grades are as good as the grades of rich kids, but their test scores are systematically worse than the scores of rich kids. I mean, you know, I've had people go up hundreds of points in just a couple of weeks sometimes. That's Ben Paris, who's coached these tests for 26 years. Hundreds of points? I've never actually had anybody investigated for this, but I've, there are some students where actually they did so much better on the second one where I was afraid they were going to get called in. Because it, the, the score looks so fishy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, there was, there was a couple that I took that were, um, that were pro bono cases, and these are just great kids. And one of them was coming in at like 700, and she was working a part-time job, had family responsibilities, but she just fundamentally didn't know how the test was put together and what they expected. You know, she could study all of math, but guess what? Not all of math is on the test. So by really focusing her on what she needed to, uh, what was going to get her points and understanding how the questions worked, she went up over a thousand. And so she went from not getting into college or being stuck in remedial classes to getting in and then never having to take a remedial class. And, you know, if I had had more than a month with her, who knows how well she could have done. That's a thought that Ben Paris had whenever he coached poor kids. But it didn't happen often. It was a rich kids market. To be a lucrative market, it kind of had to be. Because if everyone could afford SAT coaching, SAT coaching would cease to offer an edge. Everyone would just game the test in the same way. That's what Paul Tuff found, too. While it wasn't totally true that you can just buy a test score, it wasn't totally false either. But he found something else, a sort of moral vacuum at the heart of American education that gets noticed mainly when someone from the outside walks in. There was this one young man named Ben Dormus, and Ben, Ben, he was this amazing guy, a senior in high school in Washington. This Ben was also from a less affluent home. A series of lucky accidents had landed him in the office of Ned Johnson, crack test prep coach, who agreed to give him SAT coaching for free. So he got all of these advantages, and he worked incredibly hard, and Ned helped him improve his SAT score on, on the math side by 100 and something points, and he got into Yale. But at Yale, things got complicated because this poor kid couldn't shake the sense that getting into Yale involved some underhanded trick. Ben really felt this sense that he had been given something that was unfair, um, and that while he appreciated it, he, he could not stop thinking about the people who'd been left behind because he knew that he was actually no different than the person that he was a few months earlier before he'd gotten all this coaching, and that that guy would never have gotten to Yale, but this guy who got all this coaching uh, did get into Yale. He just keeps thinking about, like, what, how, did, how does that system work, that system that he suddenly uh, kind of magically got entree into, and, and how can it be more fair? How can, how can it be made to be more fair? I'm interested in this story because it gets at the great unspoken question. Most of the kids who get test coaching never ask the question. They don't even think of what they have as an edge, since all the other kids they know also have it. But coaching is the great force keeping them in the station to which they were born and keeping less fortunate kids out of it. Arrest warrants issued for 46 people around the country, including coaches and wealthy parents like Felicity Huffman. We now know that some rich American parents were taking the college testing game to its logical conclusion. 
The star of Desperate Housewives is so desperate to land her daughter in a top school. Prosecutors say she paid $15,000 to Singer to bribe a proctor who would secretly correct her answers. If a test isn't measuring much except your ability to take it, and you can pay some coach to teach you to do that, why not just avoid all the bother and pay the coach to take the test for you? That kid who got the SAT coaching and went to Yale was right to feel uneasy. He'd used a coach to help him climb to the top of America's steepest slope. The only difference between him and all the other people on top was that he could feel that it was slippery. I'm Michael Lewis. Thanks for listening to Against the Rules. Against the Rules is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. The show's produced by Audrey Dilling and Catherine Giroudot, with research assistance from Lydia Jean Cott and Zoe Wynn. Our editor is Julia Barton. Mia Lobel is our executive producer. Our theme was composed by Nick Brittell, with additional scoring by Stellwagen Symphonette. We got fact-checked by Beth Johnson. Our show was recorded by Topher Ruth and Trey Schultz at Northgate Studios in Berkeley. As always, thanks to Pushkin's founders, Jacob Weisberg and Malcolm Gladwell. Um, so my name is Tian Carpenter George, um, and my book is Overcoming Amateurism: uh, Amateurism, uh, Coaching Traditions in British Sport. Do that one more time so we have it clean. I've, I've really just forgotten the name of my book. Okay, <laughs> that's a, why a, a history um, of coaching in uh, a history of sports coaching in Britain. Overco- that's it. Overcoming no, amateurism. No. Yes, that's very history, British yes. of you. You that you say that you're you, you spend so little time talking about yourself, you can't even remember the name of your book. I know. How dreadful! I know the first <laughs> bit. I know the first bit because that was the name of my PhD. But the end bit it was yeah. Um, so overcoming your amateurism, uh, a history of. No, I've forgotten it again. <laughs> Why do I feel like I just walked into faulty towers? All right, can you? Can let's just just introduce. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10x points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter.